Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Michael the Pod Pina, and I'm joined on the other line by Sports Illustrated senior writer Chris Herring. Chris, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing good, man. How are you? I'm hanging in there. I'm hanging in there. I'm excited for today's show. Uh, we have a lot to to cover um, because the playoffs have just been absolutely incredible so far. Um, but first, you know, I wanted to quickly talk about the altercations that have materialized over the past 24 hours between fans and players. You know, you had Russell Westbrook getting popcorn dumped on him in Philadelphia, and you had a fan at Madison Square Garden last night spit on Trey Young. Um, both fans have been barred from those two arenas indefinitely by the Sixers and the Knicks. We also had... Kyrie Irving said yesterday, unprompted in a um, a Zoom presser, that he was weary of racist comments being made when the Nets play in Boston on Friday night, which is a different category than those first two incidents, I think, but you know, somewhat tangentially related. Um, you know, I told you before we recorded that I don't have fully formed thoughts on this, um, but I feel like it's 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 good to, to broach and, you know, beyond having fans in arenas is a really good thing. And it's been really exciting. People just got to act better. Um, but for you, just Chris, how, how have you kind of taken it all in with these kind of like ridiculous events, marring beautiful basketball? No, I, I think it's a relevant conversation. Um, I just think our country and not even just our country, cause this is a problem in other countries as well. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's difficult for some people to just enjoy stuff in moderation without crossing over a boundary. And, um, you know, there, there, there have always been problems with this sort of thing. I, when I was tweeting about this yesterday, 
Um, I tweeted about how inappropriate it was and shitty it was, quite frankly, you know, excuse my language, that, um, you know, watching the thing with Westbrook happen and I had a fan jump in my mentions like, oh, come on, it's popcorn. And I was like, what? How okay. are we still doing this? <laughs> yeah. And he was like, and, and like, he went on to say, he was like, man, I wish someone would come into my workplace and like dump popcorn on me. I love popcorn. I'm like, what? And it's just, you know, so granted, it's one weird person with a weird opinion. Um, but, you know, keep in mind, this is with Russ, at, at least, first of all, he's walking off injured to the locker mm-hmm. room injured. This is the same arena where a couple of years ago in a nationally televised game, a courtside fan flipped him off and was swearing at him no more than 10 to 12 feet from Russ. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is not that far removed from a couple weeks ago, or I guess a couple months ago with LeBron in Atlanta, I want to say, where, mm-hmm. um, you know, a fan was yelling at him and saying all these things about all these inappropriate things LeBron had said to them. And then it was kind of confirmed that LeBron hadn't actually done that. So, Look, you you could tie this as closely with the ugly sort of underbelly of ugliness, racist stuff that we've seen in this country for a long time. And you could get as deep and far in the weeds as you want to. I don't even think it's really that necessary. But when you talk about people just kind of lying about what players have done or what players have said, if you're talking about the stuff in Utah a few years ago and how someone said, I didn't say anything inappropriate. And then all these other people are openly disagreeing with that. And mm-hmm. the fact that these players deal with a lot of this stuff anyway, when they get particularly riled up, when Westbrook got really hot under the collar a couple of years ago, it might've been that, that Utah incident or something else. Um, you see the stuff they're dealing with, getting flipped off, getting called out of their name, getting stuff said about their families. It, when they get really angry, it probably tells you that what they've been, what's been said to them has been beyond the pale. Marcus Smart dealt with it before he even got to the pros and plays in Boston and has complained about some of the stuff there. So I, I just think it's people talk about the players being soft and everything else and the players being entitled, you know, that you used to be able to say this or do this and it didn't bother players. They just dealt with it. Okay. We're not in the nineties or the seventies anymore. Um, the, the fans, there are a lot of fans that are just frankly really entitled. Um, we have come off a year where we weren't able to do any of these things to go to these games. And it is amazing to see all the fan support and see how loud these fans can get. But yeah, I, I worry a little bit that there are too many people that maybe are just so excited to be back out that they're doing this. But there was a lot of this stuff before the pandemic too. And I, I, I cannot get over the Trey Young thing with regards to like we're in a pandemic and someone is spitting on this guy. It's, it's unreal. I don't even really know what point I'm making with it, but there's, there's a thin line with all this stuff from how closely tied it is to some of the stuff I was talking about before to, you know, I don't know. It's just a very, very bad look. Yes. They're isolated fans, but on some level, you know, everybody could probably be doing more saying more when they see stuff like that. If they see stuff like that, you know, it, it's, it's just ugly. It, it, it's not ruining the game, but it, it makes me incredibly uncomfortable when we talk about how how long we're still talking about malice at the Palace and everything else and how the players cross some line. It's like a whole lot of fans are crossing a whole lot of lines here, mm-hmm. and the players should not have to be in a situation where they have to show this much restraint this frequently. 
Um, and I, I don't really know what to say more than that. Yeah, the Trey Young stuff is straight up just disturbing. Um, it, I mean, it's made me a little bit uncomfortable in general, The some of the chants that we're ringing out. And I know that's part of sports, and maybe I'm just like not used to... No, it's made me a little bit uncomfortable too, but yeah. that, that's what I'm saying is like, it's hard to be full-throated about endorsing that because, again the closer you walk up to that line. And I know it's just a word. I know it's just a phrase. It's just a chant. But when you have people going nuts to begin with, to that extent, you have people that then cross a line and it emboldens everybody else to kind of be crazier. And it just, you know, look, I I get that fans are just having a good time. Trey Young has handled it well, I think. Um, It's, I think it's healthy to have sort of the villain and the, you know, the, the fan base that hates the villain, but there's a whole lot of stuff that like we, we didn't even get into this, but just the country is a little bit charged up for all sorts of reasons over the last couple of years. And you really hope that that stuff doesn't spill into this. And that's without knowing anything about which fans are doing this and saying this and what their beliefs are and what have you. But like I said, there's a whole lot of entitlement out there right now. And um, you just hope that as there's a whole lot of all this stuff going around that it doesn't bubble over into something that you can't take back or get back. And um, like you said, spitting on someone in the midst of a pandemic or trying to, and the idea that you're spitting on them with everybody else around you. And like, even if you didn't hit him, the other people you could hit, it's just disgusting. And I think all of this stuff is disgusting. It doesn't have to be spilling beer, throwing beer on someone. Popcorn's inappropriate too. I mean, it, it should, all of it should go without saying. And it's not many people, but it's enough to where it's disturbing. And it's, it's really frustrating. Yeah, I, before we move on, I just want to quote Trey Kirby um, from the No Dunks pod, uh, who I think tweeted something along the lines of just boo. Booing is fun. And I agree with that sentiment. Booing is fun. If you don't like someone on the other team, boo. That's all you, that's all you got to do. It's not complicated. Um, having fans in the stands has been just awesome to watch. Um from my couch still, but still very awesome to watch. I can't wait to, to, to get to an arena and watch a game in person. Those environments I really miss. Um, hopefully this stuff doesn't happen again throughout, well, forever, <laughs> but at least throughout the rest of this postseason. Um, all right, Chris. So, you know, I want to start, and now that we're going to shift to basketball, I want to start with a series that I can't stop thinking about. And I wrote about it earlier this week. It's Clippers Mavs. Uh, you know, I'm just being 100% honest. I-, I did not see any of this coming. The Clippers were my pick to win it all this season, and now they're obviously down 0-2, dropping two straight at home um, with by far the worst defense in the entire playoffs. So, so Chris, like, I, I want to put, I want you to put yourself in Ty Lue's shoes right now. Heading into game three, like what adjustments need to be made, if any, to avoid, you know, that dreaded 3-0 deficit and just an almost guaranteed early exit if you're the Clippers? Just what would you do if you were Ty Lue right now? Saying more prayers than he and the rest of the team have probably (laughs) been saying. Uh, So, I mean, I was looking at it and I don't know that I have a completely honest answer. Um, You know, you can always write off the first game as jitters, as, you know, like a lack of preparedness, whatever. The second game, looking from the very first 
possession, two possessions. I mean, they're they're throwing Paul George at him. You know, after the first two or three possessions, they're throwing Kawhi Leonard at Luca. Um, you know, they're trapping. I wouldn't say hard, but you know, they they throw. They're, they're kind of showing really hard on him um, to kind of force the ball out of his hands at times. Um, they're doing the thing where they kind of shade just enough to let him into the paint a little bit, but then trail him really aggressively to make sure that he's kind of trapped from behind and in front. Um, and the truth is like, none of it is working. Um, and, you know, if, if, and when he's passing to somebody else, everybody's hitting their shots. What are they shooting? 53% for the series? 900, 970% actually. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> I I don't know what the answer is. I mean, my inclination would be to trap him more aggressively, Luca, and uh, really just force the guys to prove they can keep hitting shots. But that's kind of a bold strategy when they've already hit better than 50% of their shots. Uh, you could try to drop really far down and make Luca beat you as a shooter, but he's hitting his shots too. And some of them have been like 32 foot bombs uh, and a couple of them have been like consecutive possessions in a row. I don't know what you do in a situation like this. I mean, really, if I'm being honest at this point, the real answer feels like they don't really have any, and which is a crazy thing to say, but like they have Kawhi Leonard and Paul George on their roster and they don't have a single person on that group who's like well-equipped to guard Luca, which that, Which means there's no one in the world that probably not, that. probably not. And, and I mean, like the truth is, if if Dallas is going to hit anywhere near fifty percent of their shots, and you're forcing the ball out of Luca's hands when he's hitting other people, they're scoring too. Um, you know, I think they've scored on the the seven possessions they've trapped on in pick and rolls. I think they've gotten like eight points out of that, so they're not inefficient with that at all. I mean, they're doing pretty well with that as well. I don't know if there's a really great answer. And, um, you know, like I said, the, the strategy I guess I would probably go with is to go after him hard. Um, because what annoys me, number one, is that last year when they played, you know, they, they had the same matchup and it looks a whole lot like last year where they just didn't have many answers for him. Um, secondly, what annoys me is that he's scoring too well and too easily sometimes where he does get in the paint and, He's just blowing past Zubac at times um, to get to the basket for a layup or a dunk and or one or two cases. And it's just kind of like, okay, you can't, you definitely can't do that. But, you know, like I said, I, I guess you just have to gamble a little bit if it means occasionally just giving him a lot of space and daring him to shoot, which, you know, it's, it's a hard pill to swallow when he's making some of those. Um, or you're just daring his teammates, Finney Smith in particular, to just keep shooting as well as they're shooting, but none of these are good options. And it, you know, it just kind of feels like their offense is too good for the Clippers defense, which is a scary thing to say. And if the Clippers can't quite keep up scoring, which, you know, the stat is out there, Dallas was what the number three defense in the league against top 10 offenses. Um, it might just kind of be lights out, but um, it, it doesn't look like Ty Lue has that much to go to, or that he's really reluctant to go to it. If he's got tricks up his sleeve, I'm a little bit surprised that it looks so much like last year's series. Um, I figured it would look different. Um, but then again, Brunson is back. You know, Porzingis is out there. Um, two guys that weren't there the whole time uh, last last postseason. But my goodness, Dallas looks scary. And it, it, it's really exciting to think about 
what that next series would look like if they advance against the Jazz. Mm-hmm. It would be a great matchup. Yeah, so I mentioned that I wrote about this series after game one, and blitzing is what I advocated for. I thought that they did a really, the Clippers did a really good job of being super aggressive at the point of attack with whoever was setting the screen for Luka um, in the fourth quarter of game one. I mean, Luka had one point, I think, in that you're quarter, right. which yep. is pretty, that's that's good. If you're the Clippers, that's what you want. Um, so they started game two. One of the first ball screens, Zubats comes up and uh, tries to squeeze the ball out of Luka's hands, tries to blitz him. And Luka just like turns the corner and gets all the way into the paint for a dunk. And That's I think the Ty one Lue, I saw. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think Ty Lue at that point was like, all right, we are just, we're not doing that. <laughs> um, so, like, I don't know. I mean, they're switching a ton. If I'm Ty Lue, honestly, I. I don't know if I'm benching Patrick Beverly for the rest of the series, but I'm just I'm not playing him as often as I probably th- expected to heading in. And it stinks cuz Zubats is really good, but he just you know, he's moving his feet, he's trying his hardest. I just I don't think <laughs> I would be cutting his minutes too, I think if I was Ty Lue. I mean, when I watch Luca like with Pat Beverly on him, it just reminds me of like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids outtakes. Like, it's just extremely <laughs> difficult to watch. Oh, um, so, like, if I was Ty Lue, I, w- I would try to play Terrence Mann way more. I thought he would was going to be a fixture in the rotation based on how exciting he's been throughout the regular season and just, like, the energy he provides. And they started to play him. I think he played the whole fourth quarter of Game 2, which was really good to see. But, like, you know, like, Luke Kennard just hasn't played at all um you know i would i would probably play reggie jackson a little bit more and i would stay small as much as possible with morris at the five but you know have larger bodies at those guard positions so i can switch and just not get absolutely obliterated by luca um like, I don't know, man. Like, I, I think that the Serge Ibaka injury is really, really critical and not enough people are talking about it. The fact that this guy has played like 40 total minutes in the past two months and plays yeah. like six minutes in game two and just was not it just wasn't working out for him. Um, so I don't I don't know what you do beyond some of those rotational changes. But then I look at like the three point shooting, as you mentioned and it's like at some point it's got to come back to earth, right? Like the Clippers were the best three-point shooting team in the NBA this season. Yep. Um, they're not hitting shots right now. They're shooting 32% from deep. The Mavs are at 53%, as you said, 57% on pull-ups, which is just like <laughs> that can't that, that can't be sustainable. And, you know, if it is, then you're just going to lose. I'm sorry. That's just the NBA today um, with the volume of three-point shots that are going in. But, like, I just I don't know what else there is to do if you're Ty Lue besides cross your fingers, say a prayer, as you mentioned. Like they've been doing everything they can to stop Luca, and it just hasn't been enough. Yeah, I mean, so to get into some of what you said, um, the 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 Beverly possessions where he's trying to guard Luca, and I think one of the things that bothers me too. But it, again, it all comes back to how well Dallas is shooting from three everybody's kind of on this island because you're afraid to leave the shooters. So Luca, you know, basically backs in Beverly or whoever else from the three-point line all the way down and, you know, to the block. 
and then scores. And it just, it looks so helpless. Uh, one, it re- I was trying to think of what it makes me think about. And I just keep thinking about these Michael Jackson videos where <laughs> like, or even like the, the I, I, I YouTube, uh, I YouTube searched the Michael Jackson video game Moonwalker, where there's just like a, an array of dudes, bad guys that come in and are trying to beat you up. And one by one, you just kind of take them apart. And that's kind of what it feels like as Luca just mows down all these Clippers defenders. Like it's insane, but. Um, that's the greatest metaphor or similar. Or, or, or worse. You want to say. <laughs> or worse. No, it's the best. No, give yourself a, a pat on the back. There. One or the that's other. Tremendous. But it, 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 I mean, it, it's, it, it does kind of just have that feel though of, you know, the, the Clippers are, they're either going all the way in where you said they're blitzing, you know, they're trapping and, and not doing it very efficiently, or they're basically switching and they're saying, okay, you're by yourself here. You're on an Island and they're doing it with Beverly. And even when they're doing it with choir, other people, it, it's not, Luca's just too big and too tall and he can score over anybody. If you throw too many people at him, he can pass to the right guy. And you've got to hope at a certain point that they come back down to earth. But even if they hit, 35 or 40%, that's still enough to potentially beat you with how efficiently they operate. So I don't know. I mean, they could very easily get through a four-game series and just sweep this thing while shooting 50 45% for the series. I mean, I so that's where I'm at a certain point, the Clippers just have to hope. I don't really think within the rotational stuff that you talked about, none of it really feels like it's such a difference maker to where it turns the whole series unless PG and gets hot, you know, and – and really, some of the guys that you expect to be doing better, um, you know, quite frankly, I don't know if I had the Clippers pegged as the favorite in the West, but, you know, the reason that I had them winning the series in seven, which I guess technically still could happen, is that, you know, they, like you said, they were the best three-point shooting team in the league. Between Jackson and Morris, I think they might have been literally one and two for either the second half of the season or most of the season um in terms of three-point shooting and they're both Mm -hmm. really struggling in this series as far as shooting the ball so i mean it's i won't say it's everything that could go wrong is going wrong but it's a lot of the stuff that they would need to go right isn't going right and um and you know the defense it's not necessarily awful defense but their defense doesn't look nearly as good as dallas's offense and that's just not going to get it done here yeah i mean there's some possessions where Kawhi is fighting through screens and he's not he's refusing to switch and i mean that obviously takes a ton of energy meanwhile you know he leads the the clippers in usage obviously he's their go-to scorer and i mean he's getting buckets in his own right and maybe is even we're, we're talking about him a little bit less than we should given how well he played um, in game two, I thought that first half where he dropped 30, I want to say like an efficient 30, it was just like one of the better halves of basketball I've seen that I can even remember. It was absolutely incredible. Um, I, you know, I might be getting ahead of myself, which is something that I tend to do when, <laughs> you know, a team is down 0-2 like this and is playing, they're playing well, but this the other team just seems like they have their number. Like what, what do you think, Chris, is the fallout? for the Clippers if they were to actually lose this series. Like, and specifically, you know, I just mentioned Kawhi. We never talked about 
throughout this entire season, his free agency. It was just like a non-story. I feel like it was a, a bit of a fait accompli that he would re-sign with the Clippers um, as soon as he was avail- able to do so on a long-term max. Like, is he a legitimate flight risk now if you lose in the first round? Just like, what are even the basketball reasons for him to stay? I, I can't think of any. Man, we, we just watched Kawhi win a championship and say peace. So, <laughs> uh, I <laughs> mean, when point. you when you lose in the first round, uh, you know, after barely, well, I won't say barely. I guess they won what they won in six last year, right, against Dallas. But you know, it was it was an uncomfortably tight series last year as well. Um, without Porzingis, yeah, without Porzingis, then losing, you know, in a really kind of heartbreaking sort of way, and you know, giving up a three-one lead, which you could slice that a couple different ways last year. On the one hand, you could say, man, that was kind of fluky that that happened. We're going to come back better next year because of it. Um, and, yeah, that, that that would not have been the case here. I mean, they, they really they looked really solid both years coming into the playoffs as far as how well they were shooting, as far as Paul George just being, you know, firing on all cylinders. Um, this would be pretty disheartening. And like you said, I was kind of thinking in my own head, like, what would be the motive to stay? At that point, the basketball reasons to stay, obviously, is from California. Um, and you look at their roster, man, and, and obviously uh, you mentioned Kennard, and there's a number of other guys on this roster, man, that aren't going anywhere unless they're traded, I guess. But, you know, what you would get for Kennard or anything else at this point, uh, there's a lot of guys that are locked in for a while here in L.A. And so this is kind of your roster. Um, you know, all along, people were kind of curious, would they go get a point guard? Um, you know, who, who could they get? Who realistically could they get because of their payroll being so high already? I I don't really know what the motivation to stay is other than if he just really wants to get it done there. But I, you know, it, it's disheartening to look at the situation and realize, man, this looks so much like the series last year, except they're beating us now. Um, and we're defending it kind of the same way we did. There's a new coach, I guess, but it, it looks a lot like last year, except Dallas looks better and they're healthier than they were last year. So I I don't really know what the answer is, but yeah, I think he absolutely has to be viewed as a flight risk. Um, you've got you've got a big market team that, you know, looks on the upswing, certainly. You know, I, I don't know how big a concern, you know, New York is specifically, but there are certainly places to go if Kawhi wants to do that, but you know, who, who knows exactly what's in his head? Like I said, he won it before and still decided to leave. So I, I don't know, but it's, it's very clear that the makeup of him and PG is kind of the two key guys is not enough unless you're suggesting that they've just gotten bad matchups. And I mean, at this point, you know, they mm. will have played two contenders in the West between Denver and Dallas. Dallas isn't going anywhere. And you could make the argument that they're not even a top four team in the West necessarily, you know, depending on the way stuff shook out this year, depending on what you think of Phoenix going forward, the Lakers are there. So I don't, you know, I don't know that the Clippers are so great or that they've shown that they're so great that Kawhi should have reason to just say I'm staying no matter what. Um, So that's got to be a huge concern uh, just from the standpoint of it's not clear how much flexibility the Clippers have to really improve quickly. I mean, you look at the roster, as you said, a lot of guys on long-term deals. Marcus Morris is getting paid. Luke Kennard's getting paid. Um, 
I mean, they don't have any draft picks really because or tradable draft picks because of the trade that brought in Paul George. They don't have any cap space. The one guy who I look at that you could move in this is probably more closely aligned with like fantasy basketball, but move Paul George for another star. And I, you know, I tried to think of any possibilities out there that would seem even semi-realistic. And it's just, you throw some of the names like Brad Beal or Dame up in Portland. Like, I don't know. I I just, I can't actually see a trade like that materializing. It's just those star for star trades are so, uh, so rare for a reason. Um, the one team that also I want to just mention that I'm not a capologist. I briefly looked at this, and I think it's technically possible. I know Bam Adebayo just signed that extension, but if Miami, um, if Paul, if Kawhi Leonard takes a meeting with Pat Riley, I, if I were the Clippers, I would just I, I don't know. I would just melt into a puddle because <laughs> that that situation is just absolutely perfect for him. Um, Jimmy, bam, that's just a big three. You're in the Eastern Conference, an easier path to the title. I I don't know how realistic any of that is. I'm just kind of throwing it out there. Um, but, yeah, man, it's, it's, it's looking really interesting for the Clippers. I don't think that the series is over yet because I have so much respect for Kawhi above everything. But down 0-2, it's, it's tough. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notify, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The wait is over. The shy is back on Paramount Plus, and the stakes have never been higher. Everything changes on the South Side when a new threat comes to power in the Showtime original series from Emmy winner Lena Waithe. Battle lines will be drawn, alliances will shift, and danger lies around every corner, leaving everyone to wonder who they can trust. Visit ParamountPlus.com/theshy to get a fifty percent discount off the Paramount Plus with Showtime annual plan. Offer ends July fourteenth. Subscription auto renews. Restrictions apply. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values: premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. In your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. 
Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. So like speaking of just like disappointments for you, Chris, like who... What player has been, would you say, has been the most disappointing in the entire postseason so far? Uh, I, I would probably say Randall from the Knicks so far. Just, uh, you know, and I, I get that he's kind of in that weird gray area where absolutely he's had a star season. Um, do we put him on that same level? I mean, theoretically, I guess you could you could – maybe float Paul George in that conversation. But we, I mean, like we've kind of seen this from him before. So it's, Mm -hmm. it feels a little, I mean, we could do that, but it almost feels redundant to say that. And obviously if he and Kawhi were both playing at, you know, just superstar levels, then we're not having the whole opening segment be about the Clippers to begin with. But, um, but Randall, you know, you and I have gone back and forth kind of about what we expected with the Hawks Knicks series. And, you know, I think you, you might, you know, have have been the most bullish on the Hawks to begin with, um, with mm-hmm. regards to saying that you thought they could win in five. And I was like, oh, you're, you're crazy, essentially. Like, that series will go at least six or seven. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't know if all that for you was, like, rooted in believing in the Knicks, not believing in the Knicks offense or not believing in Randall. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Randall hasn't really – I mean, there were times last night where he looked like he didn't want to shoot where he actually had looks and just wasn't shooting them or wasn't really making aggressive moves to the basket. Um, and look, the Hawks are really talented. I think they're, they're underrated defensively. Even I think I underrated them even defensively um, when they weren't at full strength and at full health, but I don't think their defense is so great to where, like, I think they have a good scheme on Randall, but I don't think it's such a suffocating system that they're running against him to where he can't do anything. Um, so I've been, you know, and, and quite frankly, like you could make the argument that they're up 2-0 and obviously you could go back and forth with that. You know, if, if Nate McMillan doesn't sit his bench forever in game mm. two, that, you know, that the series is 2-0 in favor of the Hawks. So you could do that, you know, if sort of thing all day long. But um, Randall has not really looked himself. And, you know, we talked all year about how much he was overshooting his expectations as far as, you know, expected field goal percentage. Um you know, based on how closely guys are guarding him and how he shot in the past and what an average player would be expected to shoot on the same looks and the same openness. Um, And he's, you know, overshot those metrics all year long. But if this is just a regression to the mean, what a bad time for it. Um, You know, the Knicks did just enough to to kind of squeak that one out yesterday, but it wasn't really that much because of him at all. Um, If anything, you know, I'm sure Nick fans are thanking God that, Thibodeau, you know, came to his senses and took Peyton out um, and, and just started Rose and went with them in the second half and rode Derrick Rose. But, um, you know, it, it's hard to imagine the Knicks winning that series without Randall playing better. And so he's probably been the most disappointing frontline guy that I've looked at so far. Yeah, I I really like the defensive coverages that Atlanta's thrown at him. I mean, John Collins gets in the early foul trouble and then you got to play Gallo and um, eventually, in the third quarter, Randall finally started to get really aggressive and and attack Gallo before they could kind of load up to stop him. But like, yeah, you you know, you said something interesting that Randall didn't really look like himself over the past couple of games. And 
that's been my feeling about him the entire season. I'm just like, this guy doesn't look like Julius Randle to me. And literally every single time to this day, I know I sound like such a hater, but... When he, whenever he makes a three, I'm surprised. Like there are a lot of players around the league. Whenever they miss a three, I just expect every shot to go in. With Randall, I expect every single three not to go in. I expect every pull up two, which he's he's not accurate or efficient on the pull up twos. Still, I expect those to all not go in, and they haven't um, for the most part. Um, so that's a that I mean that's a really interesting one. I, you know. This is a little random, but, you know, R.J. Barrett not playing in the fourth quarter at all is also, you know, if I was a Knicks fan, I'd be like, man, this is a lot of stuff happened in that game, too, for them to come back. And I think a lot of it, you you know, you wrote about it really well on the site, but a lot of it was just Atlanta shooting itself in the foot. I felt like, like there was some just rotational decisions and substitution decisions that Nate McMillan made that were just way too conservative. Um, (sighs) Yeah. I love Nate McMillan, but it's just it, if you could take regular season Nate McMillan and and just like he, he's the guy I think about when I'm you know when people talk about how stuck in the mud NFL coaches are about punting you know whenever they get to fourth <laughs> down no matter you know it could be fourth and like a centimeter and you're punting no matter what and Nate McMillan does that with with his yeah obviously it was in the story too but it's just it's yeah, I, I found myself looking at my watch, you know, with how regards I don't even have a watch, but like I want I was still looking at my non-existent watch, trying to figure out when the hell he was going to bring Trey Young back in the game. Or if not Trey, and I said this on Twitter, like you've got Bogdanovich, who I get that he's been with your starters uh, for, for you know most of the year and that you've been using him that way. But the guy was a sixth man in Sacramento for years. Like, I mean, he was a great, maybe not great, but he was a very good creator um with like bench rotations a guy that can get his own basket but also is fantastic to play with your your top guys because he can just serve as a spot-up shooter as well and I mean has been killing the Knicks throughout the series with you know random shots that he comes up with or loose balls that he comes up with so I I just find myself at a loss where I guess your your bench was really effective last game and Lou Williams you know Lou Williams was so hot in game one to where I actually was almost wondering, like, do you bring Trey back? Is it worth bringing Trey back right now since you you theoretically don't want to put two really poor defenders out there at the same time, undersized uh, poor defenders out there at the same time in Trey and Lou. But, you know, like, Lou's got it going. Maybe you just give Trey an extra breather here if you don't really need him. Um, and obviously it was the right decision to bring Trey back in. So it's not to say Nate never makes the right calls, but, man, he just – he makes such conservative calls and obviously kind of invokes some of the Indiana stuff. And it was funny because I, you know, the story got retweeted a decent amount of times for something that I didn't think anybody would care about. Um, Nick fans were too happy to care about retweeting a story like that. Hawks fans are too dejected to retweet a story like that. But then I look up, I'm like, Oh, this story's getting a decent amount of traction. I look up and it's all Pacers fans retweeting the hell out of the story. Cause they're like, been there, <laughs> done that. I know all about this. This is exactly what I was thinking as I was watching the game. And it, it's fascinating because, you know, I could sing Nate McMillan's praises all day long about how well and how much his teams have overachieved in the regular season, I think largely because of how good he is. But the playoffs, everything is just so important in the playoffs. And, you know, even Thibodeau realizing that I can't start Alfred Payton here in the second half. Um, it's going to make for a fascinating finish just because of what you said about Barrett and Randall 
and Rose, who admitted to being pretty tired yesterday, and you know we all have the That's concerns about his body. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, as great as he's been, I mean, he's been fantastic this series, this season for them. But uh, it's you know they, they did get it going a little bit with Bullock and Obi Toppin made great contributions. Now I'm getting off subject, but it was that series. <laughs> I was most excited about that series to begin with, and it's living up to the to the hype. One of the more interesting, I mean, the analogy that you used with NFL coaches. You know, what comes to mind when I think of Nate McMillan is how NFL coaches, I don't even know if they still do this because I basically stopped watching football a few years ago, Me but too. like having scripted plays, like the first 15 plays of the game, like we know what we're doing before the game starts. I always thought that was the height of stupidity. And <laughs> when you look at Nate McMillan, like Trey and Bogdan played the exact same amount of minutes, they subbed in and out of the game at the exact same time throughout the entire game. And it just has that scripted feel to me where it's like, like he headed into the game and this is when I'm subbing Trey and Bogdan in. This is when I'm subbing them out. This is how much they're going to play together. This is what this stint's going to look like, regardless of what is happening in front of his eyes. Maybe that's unfair, but that's just kind of how it transpired from, from my perspective and my vantage point. Um, I'm like in my notes, I'm writing, why is Trey and Bogdan not on the floor? Like, what is happening? You know, you can stagger those two. You can play one yeah. with a bench. Like, it, that's probably a good idea to do that. Held um, them out for almost eight. I, I, well, they went, they had that stretch where they only made one basket over 13 possessions. Uh, they, they, went, they missed so 12 brutal. out of 13. And they, and I looked back at how long a stretch that was. I think Trey and, and Bogdan were on the court together for like the first two possessions of it. But after that, it was seven, I think seven thirty-nine of game time, seven minutes, 39 seconds that those guys were out and eight minutes for a playoff game is a long time to hold out really your two best scores and to do it together. Yeah. <laughs> and you um, can't score. <laughs> well, you're not scoring anything. You're watching Gallinari just play horribly. Um, uh, it was, yeah. it was, pretty brutal and um you know the Knicks had Randall and Rose and you know at one point Noel like they had essentially I know Rose wasn't a starter for them but they essentially had three starters on the court for a chunk of that time and yeah it just uh, kind of mind-blowing to watch that happen and it's it's interesting um you know Thibodeau is was probably reluctant to to start Rose in the second half obviously did it but you know, it, it's crazy, even for Thibodeau, who already puts his pedal to the metal with regards to his minutes and, you know, his players' minutes and stuff like that, that he's going to go the extra step even with Rose and the, you know, the concerns we've had about Rose for years with his his body holding up and everything else. And just whether or not you have enough off the bench at that point if you start him in the second half. Um, and the fact that even he extended him and played him 39 minutes, and then we're looking at 22-year-old Trey Young not doing that. It just has the feel of like the Milwaukee stuff from the last couple of years where Giannis would play 34 minutes and, and Bud would kind of, you know, well, I don't know if I want to push Giannis. He's not used to playing more than 35. And it's like, come on, man. Like, what what are we doing here when Rose can play 39 and you're not playing your 22 year old more than 36? Like, what are we what are we doing here? What's the what's the <laughs> point here? So it, it'll, it'll be curious to see what happens. I would venture to guess that I would hope to guess that Nate will, you know, loosen the reins a little bit and just let his guys play. Because uh, they were up by a pretty comfortable margin. They were up by, what, 11, 12? I think they started the second half up 13. 
and mm-hmm. that evaporated really quickly and that pretty much coincided with when Nate pulled his starters and you know again not just pulling them but like pulling them essentially in mass three four five at a time and you know when you're doing the line change sort of thing the way you do in hockey um it opens you up quite a bit to to just having the wheels fall off when you don't put those guys back in yeah no more a kung wu also, I just want to, you know, no disrespect him, to him. But he's yeah. going to be awesome. But just John Collins needs to be your backup five. This is the playoffs. Like, what are we even doing? Um, I still think Atlanta is going to win in five because I'm not a coward. And that was my pre-series uh, prediction. Um, as soon as I'm wrong, you can yell at me and everyone. All of our wonderful listeners can send in angry emails. Um, real quick, I just want to say that my most disappointing player is uh, Bam Adebayo. And this pains me because I love Bam, one of my favorite players in the league. Uh, just, you know, I, I wrote a piece earlier this season about how I thought he was one of the more underappreciated defenders and probably should have been a top three pick for defensive player of the year. Um, defensively, he's been okay, I think, in this series against the Bucks so far. I'm not going to blame him for Bryn Forbes hitting 19 three-pointers in the first half of game two. <laughs> but his his tentativeness on offense is just yeah. you can't like what happened like he he developed he spent the entire regular season the off season developing this mid range pull up that's pretty good pretty pretty dangerous and threatening and then he just has couched it basically for the 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 entire series so far I mean he refuses to attack Brooke Lopez when Brooke is you know deep dropping. Um, and, you know, there was this one play where uh, Jimmy Butler just literally looks at Bam as Bam looks at him. Bam catches a pass at the right elbow, looks at Jimmy, and Jimmy waves his arm to, like, attack. It's like, just go at him, man. Like, you're a foul magnet. You're finishing. You're extremely capable of finishing around the basket. Just, like, he's got to be more aggressive. Um, so that's been super disappointing, honestly. And, I mean, Jimmy has also played terribly, but I'm not going to say any bad things about Jimmy Butler ever for the rest of my life. Bam, Bam's a good pick. Bam's a good pick. I mean, it's, it, it has been, I mean, you've got Brooke dropping into the stands basically, you know, yep. underneath the basket. And um, you, that, that always is tough. And I, I feel like some of the same stuff I said with Randall is applicable here, probably even more so with Bam. Like you said, you can just see the wheels turning in his head of to shoot or not to shoot you know and that always it 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 becomes psychological at that point and it it is one of those things where if you're pat riley or your spo you just want him to shoot you just want him to make a quick decision the more indecisiveness you've got the more the defense is going to dare you to to keep doing that um and i mean Obviously, this is an offense where when you think about the things they do best, whether it's Jimmy going to the hole, whether it's Duncan Robinson coming off a screen, you know, everything they do more or less is kind of done better when it's done quickly as opposed to kind of being tentative. Um, It's not an offense where you want guys to just sit and kind of take their time and go one-on-one. It's never quite been an offense like that. So I, yeah, that's a really good pick because he hasn't looked himself either. Um, it's funny, like Randall, this is his first go round as a star and an all-star with Bam. He's still so young that I, I, I could be a little bit more forgiving of him just because I think most young stars kind of have that rough 
postseason at least once, at least in one instance where they're kind of a focal point. They don't know how to handle or react to it. Sometimes when they're in new settings, we saw it with LeBron obviously against the Mavericks years and years ago. Um, but yeah, it's it's been rough, and uh, you know who knows how much more pressure is added when when the Bucks are hitting all those shots they did in the last game. But yeah, Bam. It, it, it doesn't look like the same player in the same way that we were saying about Randall, where it just doesn't look like the same guy. Um, but who knows, you know, Bam for how consistent he was the whole season and, you know, kind of the push to become a, a true star the last couple of years. Um, you could make the argument that he'd looked consistent and consistently like a star for longer than Randall had. So that's a good pick on your part. Bam, where was the hesitancy last year in the Eastern Conference Finals against the Celtics? That's all I want to know. I mean, like, <laughs> if you're going to be this way, just you should have done that against Daniel Tice instead of mowing him over on every single possession. Um, Miami has the worst offense in the playoffs so far. Um, we have an email from Ethan about a team that has no problem getting buckets. Um, Ethan writes... I was watching highlights of Nets versus Celtics game two, and I noticed KD at center circle jumping for the tip off against Tristan Thompson. And it made me think, I remember you mentioning earlier in the season that you were concerned with Steve Nash's lack of coaching experience going into the season. I had the same concerns. With their position at the top of the Eastern Conference and the talent on their roster, I was curious if you or any of your co-hosts, that would be you, Chris, had any of the same issues going into the playoffs. Um, would love to hear what you think. I can't wait to hear your new episodes when they come out. Keep it up. Thank you so much, Ethan, for that email. Um, I think we're going to synthesize this email just with a simple question. Um, Chris, how do we know if Steve Nash is a good coach or a bad coach? Uh uh, this is normally the time of year you start to get some of those answers. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to boil it down to just that. Cause even when I was saying about Nate McMillan, I think Nate McMillan does really well in the regular season. And this is kind of where you have a lot of his attributes tested. Um, almost like your, your NBA 2K sliders, but for coaches instead of players where, mm-hmm. you know, how aggressive are you going to be? How conservative are you going to be when your guy gets a second foul? And you know, I don't want to slander Steve Nash. I don't think this will be slander. I don't know that we'll take a whole lot from this series with regards to uh, whether or not he's doing really well or not. I, I mean, they, they should win the series. Well, that's just sl- you're just slandering the Celtics now. You're not slandering. Yeah, Steve I now. mean, am I though? <laughs> I mean, I, I, look, if, if the if the Celtics were even close to having made this a one-one series, if they come back and win the next two, or you know win the next one and are close in one of the next two. I don't expect yeah. much more from them than to take one game off, off the nets here. So, um, but yeah, I, I mean, like it's, it's obviously kind of a whittled down attack from what the Celtics would have at full strength. Um, so I, I don't know how much you really prove about how good a coach someone is when they're doing kind of what's expected. Uh, the, you know, if anything, what you could say is that, they kind of snapped out of it toward the end of game one, Brooklyn. I mean, um, mm-hmm. I don't know how much of that I attribute to Nash as much as just the guys getting reps together again. Um, but I will say they, they have looked good. I, you know, I think maybe one of the things that Nash was influential with um, was kind of just more kind of his easygoing nature and kind of his ability to let guys ease into their roles. So Mm-hmm. One of the things that really stood out to me when they got Blake Griffin, for instance, who's looked incredible, you know, at times during the series and, you know, five years younger at sometimes in the series was that, you know, they didn't rush Brooke into playing as soon as they signed him. Uh, 
that it was what a couple of weeks before he played a game with the Nets after he signed with them. And, you know, the constant conversations he's having with Nash about how they're going to use them and um, how they were going to allow him to fit in instead of really asking much of him. And that has looked really smart so far. Um, you know, you ask Kyrie Irving whether Nash is a good coach or not and what he would base that on. It might be his ability to get out of the way. So it's such a subjective sort of thing. Um, but truthfully, I don't think we'll be able to answer the question. We won't be able to answer it fully, I think, for a couple of years probably. But um, I really don't think we'll even have kind of the making of an answer until we get Brooklyn matched up with a team that's kind of on even footing. So whether that's a series against the Bucks or the Sixers or something like that, where it's they're a little bit more toe to toe as far as, you know, a team that can really match up with them better than, than Boston can. I don't think Boston is a good enough match for them to really kind of size this up and, and square, you know, exactly how great or how poor Nash is. I think he's fine for what we've seen so far, but I don't think they've really had been tested just yet. Yeah. I, I just, I think this question is very interesting because the Nets, as you said, they haven't had to make any real adjustments at all. And there's a whole bunch of adjustments that they could make if they ever wanted to. You know, I think starting Blake at the five in this series was really fascinating for a variety of reasons. And the Celtics have tried to attack him on switches whenever they can. Um, but just like how this Nets team plays basketball is, is just so interesting. I mean, they've really dialed up the ISO ball with Harden. I mean, they're hunting Evan Fournier every chance they get with either Harden or Kyrie. They're playing really fast off misses. Um, it's just like like the isolations, if you look at some of the numbers, like they're, they're isolating more frequently than even those Rockets teams did that went wow. to the Western Conference Finals. And Dan Tony's obviously sitting on that bench too. And I think that his... His imprint is is felt for sure. Um, but then you just look at like, you know, DeAndre Jordan hasn't really played at all since, you know, he, he played poorly <laughs> in those back-to-back losses against the Bucks, which I don't even know when those were. There was a, it was a while ago, though, like a, several weeks. Um, and so for, for Nash to kind of put Claxton into the rotation for Jordan to start Blake, as I already said, instead of starting Jordan, I, I think that all that's really interesting. And sometimes you know, you can overcomplicate things. And so when you have the overwhelming talent, the just like the unstoppable shot creation and all the space in the world, plus like role players who've really embraced what they are and what they mean to the team, like Bruce Brown and even Blake, like I don't know that Nash needs to really do anything. And this sounds, I hope this does not sound insulting because I do not mean for it to be. That's just the situation that he's in. It's a, it's a fantastic situation. He has Harden, he has KD, and he has Kyrie. Like those are all, all, all NBA caliber players um, that can do basically anything whenever they want. And I'm really fascinated to see how they react when they're actually pressed and not going up against a team that has uh, Jabari Parker playing big minutes. That's, <laughs> that's basically my feeling on it. Yeah. Um, okay, Open Floor Globe. That is our show for today. Uh, thank you so much for all the wonderful emails. Uh, Rohan and I will be back on Tuesday instead of Monday because uh, I'm going to Florida for Memorial Day weekend. I'm very excited. Um, me and Chris, we will be back uh, a week from today. Uh, until then, please keep your questions coming. Uh, openfloormail at gmail.com. That's openfloormail at gmail.com. Um, until then, again, everyone stay safe. Enjoy the weekend, and we'll see you on the other side. Go, 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 go
From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago street course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes, Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.